Well, it is a great privilege uh, for me to introduce to you one of the most important influences on my life. He probably would not recognize that or maybe acknowledge it. Greg Wills is here to speak with us this morning. Let me tell you a little bit about Greg. Greg is the first person who ever tore one of my papers to shreds in college. And he did it in my last semester as a college senior, preparing to head to graduate school at Vanderbilt three months later. Basically what he told me, the, the, the sum total of all that red ink that looked like he had bled all over the paper was that I didn't even know how to write a thesis and, and make a whole paper hang on it and contribute to it. And it was one of the most valuable lessons that I learned, honestly. It was one I had to learn and relearn again and again all through my graduate school career. More than that, though, even more than that, Greg has been a, a, an advisor and something of a mentor from a distance for me because he's, I think our relationship has grown more since I left Southern Seminary and Boyce College, where I went to school, than before. Because Greg has come down here many times to do research at, at an archive downtown. And we've had many conversations, not just about the ins and outs of history that you guys don't have any interest in, I'm sure, but also about, uh, about calling. Because Greg had to go through a similar decision to the one that I've had to make, torn between love for the church and love for the academy and where to spend uh, my life full-time. He's been a guide for me. Greg went to Duke undergrad, uh, still Dukey, right? You're a Duke basketball fan. That's about the only sport they play over there, I'm, I'm told. Uh, and then went to Gordon Codwell for seminary, came back to Duke, and then did his Ph.D. in American church history at uh, Emory. And so it, as his time there drew to a close, uh, and, and really all through his education, he was grappling with a, a sense of calling to serve the church, which he still holds, and a sense of calling to the academy to shape and to form minds, and especially the minds of those who would go on to minister in the church. So we had many conversations along the way, especially as my time in grad school came to a close and I was trying to decide whether to go on to the academic job market or to do something like this. And his conversations, his prayer for me and encouragement of me is one of the reasons that we're doing this thing together, that, that this is the route taken. So it's a, he, he has kept up with us, and I've given him plenty of updates. He's shown a lot of interest. So it's especially sweet today for us to hear from him, from a man whose fingerprints are on our congregation, whether we recognize it or not. And, uh, and Greg is going to come and deliver to us God's word from 1 Corinthians. Greg, why don't you come on up here? Good morning. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 17. And it is a delight to be here. And Matt and Lindsay showed such hospitality to me on a number of trips down here. And I hold that in very pleasant memory. And I am delighted at uh, Matt's service, his desire to be used of God in the service of the gospel. Let's read here in this first chapter of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, beginning at verse 17. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I've been struck the last few months with how many dangerous passages there are in the scriptures. Passages that I had read many times and yet had never been struck by the danger. We domesticate the scriptures. We domesticate Christianity, our religion. We forget that what we are called to is an adventure, the likes of which those adventurers on Discovery Channel and the like know nothing of. This is one of those, but I was thinking this morning as we were as we were obeying Jesus in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that that's a very dangerous thing to do. And most of the time we're not even aware of it. In Second Corinthians chapter eleven excuse me, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, getting ahead, the same chapter, the same book, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. So a little further down from where Brother Matt read, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. The Holy Spirit afflicted some of the members of the church in Corinth for taking the Lord's Supper taking it in a way that displeased God. For they did not discern, or I think that if you understand this word, if you look in the context, I think it has to do with judging the body appropriately, but that's another story. But for doing that inappropriately, for doing that in a way that displeased God, he punished them, throwing some into disease and sickness and suffering others to death itself. A very dangerous thing. And we don't even think about that. When we bring our offerings to the church, as we ought to do. And by the way, we must take the Lord's Supper. It's commanded of us. The very thing we're commanded to do has great danger to us. When we bring our offerings to the church, as we must do, that's a very dangerous thing as well. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They brought a great offering. 
a tremendous offering in Acts chapter 5. And yet, when they, in their apparently, in their pride, in their egoism, their desire to be thought eminently pious, they misconstrued how much they gave versus how much they earned from the sale of land, and the Holy Spirit struck them dead. You know, on the last day, Jesus tells us that many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, depart from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. That's a very frightening verse. Because these are persons who, throughout their entire careers as Christians, were never once rebuked, apparently. No one ever told them, you know what, maybe you're not actually a Christian. Why would they? These are people who are casting out demons and prophesying and doing miracles. And yet, at the very end, after a life of outwardly imminent service in the church, they are rejected. There are many verses like this. If you have eyes to see, if you don't, if you don't assume that God is just going to always show grace, God is just always going to forgive, God is just always going to be patient. If you don't assume that, you begin to see the dangers. But one of the problems is that we've become foolish. And in our foolishness, we've become dull hearing, understanding, and our dullness of understanding, we assume that surely God will always forgive. Surely God will always be patient. Surely God will always indulge me in my sins and errors and pride. And when you get to that point, your foolishness is being taken away and you're seeing the way things really are. And now the scriptures can begin to talk to you, begin to correct you. The Holy Spirit begins to transform you. And to someone who not only can perceive the dangers of these verses, but someone who will become a dangerous Christian. And that's what I want to challenge us to become this morning is dangerous Christians. The problem is that we are fools, but we're not the kind of fools that we ought to be. We're fools, but we're not the kind of fools that we ought to be. Uh, Being a fool is not a good thing in the scriptures for the most part. Right, You can find verse after verse in the scriptures criticizing fools and foolishness. The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. The psalmist tells us. If you do not believe in God, you're a fool. Well, we believe in God, so maybe we're not fools. The Proverbs over and over again rebuke the foolish. The New Testament says, do not be fools, but understanding. Be wise. Over and over, foolishness is condemned. And yet here in this passage, we have foolishness commended. Foolishness commended. How how can that be? Well, it turns out we are fools, but we're not the kind of fools we ought to be. Not the kind of fools that God calls us to be. What is foolishness? At the bottom, foolishness is a a failure to discern the way things really are. Right? Sometimes we, we place great value on that which has, in fact, very little value. And so we're said to be fools. 
or we place very little value on that which has truly great value. And so we are fools. We think there's great danger where there's little, and so we're fools. We think there's very little danger where there's great danger, and so we are fools. Right, if you go outside here in this, in this parking lot and you warn everybody else in the congregation to be careful because the lions may eat you, be very careful going out to the car. Better watch your back because if you don't, the lions may eat you. Well, you're perceiving a danger that isn't there. And so everyone will think, well, I don't know what's wrong, but that's a rather foolish thing to say. You become fearful that maybe this person is much more foolish than you thought, perceiving a danger that's not there. Same thing as when you encounter a danger, but you don't consider it dangerous. Right? These people who, who uh, try to summit Mount Everest without any help or summit just about any mountain of any real challenge without any help or go hiking 50 miles into the wilderness all alone, no cell phone, no body to, to, to knows where you are. It's kind of thing. Well, it may not seem foolish until something untoward happens or until that unexpected blizzard blows in. And then you realize what a fool you've been discounting the real danger as if there were none. Fools do not perceive the actual character of the reality they are dealing with. And so Paul challenges us here. To accurately assess the situation. Um, Paul went to Corinth, do you know, Acts 18. He, he went to Athens, preached there, the famous sermon on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And when he brought together all the, all the pagan philosophers and, and, and maybe even a couple atheists there. And he declares to them the gospel and a few of them believe, including Dionysius and Damaris. And then he moves on to Corinth. And he stays in Corinth for 18 months and then some because God tells him, I've got a lot of people here and I will protect you. Don't worry about all the opposition because, because I've got a job for you to do here. And so he stays there for 18 months and more. And the Jews in particular rage against him. You remember, they tried to, to get the proconsul to punish Paul. And the proconsul said, look... Huh, this, this is just arguments about words and meanings among the Jews. If this were, were something else, I would take notice, but this is just a religious matter. Take care of it yourselves. And so they beat the ruler of the synagogue within an inch of his life. And the former ruler of the synagogue had already converted and become a Christian. And so Paul has this wonderful ministry. There are many people are saved. He establishes the church and he moves on. It's not long after he's moved on, he begins to get wind of things going ill in Corinth at the church. The church is divided, deeply divided. This is the first thing he talks about here in, in chapter 1. You're divided among yourselves. I, I taught you to be of one mind. We have a command to be of one mind, of one spirit, of one heart, and yet you guys are divided. And furthermore, you suffer immorality in your midst. You, you have sexual immorality of a sort that even the pagans do not condone. And you go along as though everything's fine. You pay no attention. This guy's in full fellowship. Nobody's correcting him. Nobody's rebuking him. This is shameful. Hand the man over to Satan. Cast him out of the, out of the fellowship. And turns out, the rich in the congregation are despising the poor. When they come together, they had a common meal frequently where they came together to share their food, to share their fellowship, 
But at Corinth, at this common meal, the rich had their own part of the room where they enjoyed their wonderful table fare, their rare food, and the poor were relegated to another section, sometimes with no food at all. And yet no one was bothered by this. Division, scorn, contempt. And what's more, Paul himself was being despised by many. There were many who were claiming to be apostles, apostles better than Paul. Paul's weak. Paul's absent. Paul's a conniver. Paul's a trickster. All of these things going on in the church of Corinth. And by the way, this is, this is an apostolic church at Corinth, planted by an apostle. He oversaw it for more than 18 months, right there at the beginning. Prophecy, miracles. How long did it take them to fall into horrible error and division and all of these things? Apparently not more than about a year. Sometimes we think if we could just live in the age of the apostles, wouldn't it be great? If our churches were just truly apostolic, we'd have no problems. No, if you've got people, you've got problems. Until Christ returns. Until we're glorified. Right, so that, that right under the nose of the apostles, you've got all these problems occurring. So once you recognize that, it's, it's not a, a profound revelation, but sometimes we forget this. And so Paul's got all these problems. He, he hears about all these problems at church at Corinth. And, and so he writes them this letter to seek to correct and teach and encourage them to do what is right. And he mentions the divisions, but in seeking to correct the divisions, the first thing he says is be fools. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom. This is one of the accusations being made against Paul. He's weak in his speech. Well, he apparently was never taught how to speak. He apparently is not a great rhetorician. He doesn't have eloquence. He doesn't even know what wisdom is. Just listen to his speeches. They're dull and plain and pedestrian. I bet any... Any farmhand could do better than Paul. But certainly those who are educated, like we super apostles, can do much better. And Paul says, I did not come to you with eloquent wisdom. Because the word of the cross is folly. The word of the cross is folly. Now, eloquence and wisdom in our day don't have the same cachet they had in the ancient world. Got a little bit. But we often consider eloquence to be rhetoric. When we say rhetoric, what we mean is mere rhetoric. When he says eloquence here, when he says eloquent wisdom here, what he's talking about is the ancient teaching, the ancient tradition of rhetoric, which to them was not mere rhetoric, at least to to most of them. It was abused by every attorney who could earn a living by making criminals go free. This kind of thing. So it could be abused, but, but as it was taught, as it was promoted, what it meant was how to make the truth effective. That's what eloquence was. That's what eloquence was. How to make the truth effective. 
Yeah, you've got to know the truth. But once you know the truth, how do you implement it into social policy? How do you make it effective in a law court? How do you produce wise legislation out of truth? That's what eloquence does. If you're a general about to go up against a superior force, a disadvantageous terrain, and your troops know that. How do you get them to do what they ought to do? And that is to fight with all their ability to use all their training and all their discipline to overcome the superior enemy. How do you get them to do what they ought to do? you got to know the right thing to do. But eloquence takes the right thing to do and turns it into action. That's what eloquence was. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Not mere rhetoric as we see it. Mere rhetoric is taking that which is false and making it sound true, taking the true and making it sound false, taking the beautiful and making it sound ugly, and vice versa. That's what mere rhetoric does. But true eloquence takes the truth and makes it powerful, takes ethics, what is right to do, and turns it into action. And he says he rejects this. He did not come with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Danger, danger, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. First time I, I've read this verse many times, and, and, and recently, within the last year or two, it finally hit me, the danger involved, suggested, implied in this verse. You see, what Paul is saying is that he could empty the cross of its power. Extraordinary. I would never have thought this. If you had asked me three years ago, four years ago, Greg, do you think it's possible for a preacher of the gospel to enter the cross of his power? I would have said, no, absolutely not. The cross has power, divine power. There's no way you can rid it by anything that you do or say. And it is true. I think Paul would grant entirely that the cross does have intrinsic power. It's not as though by preaching badly or doing whatever it is that's wrong here, it's not as though you can take Christ off the cross. It's not as though you can undo history. You can't do that. Christ still paid the price upon the cross for the sins of the world. Yet he says here that he can still empty the cross of its power. How is that possible? How is that possible? It also suggests that we can do it. If Paul can do it, we can do it. If Paul was afraid that if he uses eloquent wisdom, he can empty the cross of his power, surely it's possible for us to empty the cross of its power who have not the wisdom, training, calling, gifts that Paul had. It's a dangerous verse. It's a dangerous passage. But what's the answer? The answer, he says, is to recognize that the word of the cross is folly. The word of the cross is folly. I don't know about you, but this is, these are not really encouraging words to me. I don't want to be thought a fool. I don't want to be a purveyor of foolishness. And yet here's... Paul saying the thing that we are to proclaim is, in fact, folly. Now, it's not folly according to God. Paul makes that very clear. It's the wisdom of God to save the world through the foolishness of what we preach. That's God's wisdom. But it is folly to the world. It is folly to the world. 
after all, the gospel message is not that we are saved through our wisdom. It's not that we are saved through the right use of reason. It's not that we are saved by apologetics. It's not that we are saved by considering Edwards. It's that we are saved by faith. We could be saved by reason. We could be saved by wisdom. But in the wisdom of God, we're not. We're not. We're saved by faith. Did you ever reflect on why God chose ignorant fishermen? To preach his gospel? I know it sounds like I'm going off on the anti-intellectualist binge here, but, uh, but in a sense, I guess I am. In a sense, I guess I am. Why? Why did he do that? Weren't there any learned people in Judea? Or in Galilee even? In, certainly in Nazareth or in, in, in Galilee. Surely there were some who were educated, some who were readers of books, some who had some wisdom or eloquence. Why didn't he choose them? was because God chose to save the world through the folly of what we preach. Why is it folly to the world? Why is it folly to the world? Well, the first is the reason that I just gave you. That the call to be saved is a call to exercise faith, not reason. Surely that's unreasonable. Surely that's foolish. Surely if God, um, if God who is all wise and all knowing was going to give a message to save people, surely we ought to apprehend that message by reason. Surely we ought to receive it based upon wisdom, not faith. Now faith is not contrary to reason. Faith does not contradict wisdom or truth. Of course it does not. But wisdom and reason are not the way into salvation. Faith is. We learn from many passages of scriptures the main reason that you can't even get there through wisdom and reason is because we are fools. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we are fools. We misapprehend the very character of the world, the very character of God, the very character of our own hearts. All of this we misapprehend. All of this we pervert and turn upside down. And so when we hear the folly of the message of Jesus Christ crucified, that we might be saved By receiving that message by faith, it is foolishness because we've turned everything upside down. This message is foolishness because it's by faith and not by wisdom or reason. This message is foolishness because it talks about the necessity of a sacrifice. This message is foolishness because in this message, God the Father punishes God the Son for the sins of the world. Punishment. Awful. Horrible punishment. I thought God was a God of love. I thought God was a forgiving God. Yet if this is true, he must be a vengeful God. He must be one who delights in taking vengeance. We consider vengeance on a human scale to be an act of of ethical immaturity at best. Ethical barbarity, usually. This is folly. This is foolishness because of the harshness of the punishment against sin. The world doesn't see sin as requiring anything of this character. It's foolishness also to the world because of the resurrection. The resurrection is foolishness. In the Greek world, and for that matter, in much of our world, the resurrection of the body is, well, it just seems a little strange. In the Greek world, the resurrection of the body was a return to wickedness. 
Because in most Greek philosophy, most Greek religions, the chief problem, the chief sin was materiality. The problem that we needed to overcome in order to become the way we ought to be was to get out of our bodies, to get out of this material world, to return to the realm of pure spirit. That's salvation. And yet we're talking about the resurrection of the body in order that we may all be resurrected in bodies. This is foolishness. This is crazy. Everybody knows that the body is the problem. What we need is pure spirit. But even Christian conceptions of the resurrection and of heaven partake of this. We see heavenly existence as being disembodied spirits floating around on clouds. And even when we know that that's not right, we still don't usually think of our heavenly existence as involving bodies. Jesus has a body right now. You will have bodies. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are in Christ Jesus at the resurrection, you will get bodies, glorified bodies, new bodies, perfected bodies, but they will be bodies. Even our own conception of heaven and of eternal existence with Christ before God shows that we still in some measure consider this message foolishness because it's by faith. Because it shows the wrath of God against sin. Because it involves a resurrection. All of these things seem a bit primitive. Come on, get with it. We used to say it's the 20th century. Come on, now we've got to say the 21st century, right? It's the 21st century. Get with it. What do you think this is, the Dark Ages? By the way, I hear that argument a lot. I see that argument a lot. So many things that are true get discounted on that basis. Just ask somebody, what does time have to do with it? What does time have to do with truth? What does time have to do with ethics, with right and wrong? What, does this change over time? Well, then how is the appeal to what the calendar is prove your point? It doesn't. Unless, unless you assume that the world is just getting better and better, people are getting smarter and smarter, and truth is, 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 is going in to prevail and great victory in bringing in utopian society. That's the only basis upon which time can have an argument at all. And almost nobody believes that anymore. So don't let people get away with that it's the 21st century argument. But for all these reasons, the word of the cross is folly to the world. The unfortunate thing for us is that we're fools too, according to the world. Now, not completely. Not completely, because when we get together, we do talk about these things that are foolishness to the world. We do own these things that are foolishness to the world. We do testify to these things which are foolishness to the world. And if we get cornered, we'll confess that we believe all this foolishness. But only when we're pressed to it. And it's reflection upon this that has led me to, to recognize, I think, some of the danger here. You see, when I witness, and, and for, for better or worse, my witnessing opportunities are often when I'm thrown together with fellow travelers, especially on airplanes. And I, I'm not a big fan of the airplane uh, uh, testimonies, the airplane conversion stories. But I want to tell you one. It's not a conversion story. And by the way, our evangelistic testimonies ought to involve our failures. Most of our evangelism is failure. That's a testimony, too, both to your faithfulness and to the obduracy of sin and our need to pray for the power of the Spirit when we bear witness. But I, I recognize that when I was trying to witness to people, 
that I never met. I knew I didn't have much time. I'd probably never see them again. And so how am I going to get them to respect me enough or to like me enough that they'll be willing to listen to me share the gospel with them? I remember one time I met a professor at a, a university in South Carolina. Sitting next to me, we started talking, and what do you do? He told me, he asked me what I did. And I said, well, I happen to be a professor too. I've got a Ph.D., I've written some books, I've written... Man, I, I read New York Times and Wall Street Journal and The Economist, New Yorker Magazine. I listen to NPR. <laughs> I'm just like you. You ought to like me. If we had a chance, I know you'd like me. You ought to respect me. I'm just like you. And I realized, reflecting, that, that conversation is one of, 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 of many, but that one kind of helped me realize what's going on in my own heart. What am I doing here? Because I'm never getting to the gospel. Why not? Because I recognize that as soon as I share the gospel, all that respect that I've gained in the last 30 minutes is going to be wiped out. And I can't afford to lose that because that's my only foundation for sharing the gospel. And so what I realize is I never get to the gospel because I'm always building this foundation of respect and trust and affection. But it's never sufficient to carry the weight of the foolishness of the gospel. And so now, when I'm sitting next to a professor and he asks me, what do you do, Greg? I say, I'm a Baptist preacher. And that removes any possibility of any respect or affection at all. Start with. But the glory there, the glory there is he's not surprised when I begin to share the gospel. No shock. No surprise. Yeah, maybe no respect. But at least I get to the gospel. And so what this says about my heart is that what I love is being loved. What I love is being respected. What I love is being thought well of. I love all of that before the gospel. And I had to give all that up. Why is it that we don't share the gospel as we ought to do? Well, sentimentalism we, we're afraid we're going to offend somebody we don't like to offend people right it's not fun nobody likes it people get mad at you people scorn you people laugh at you ridicule you that's not fun we don't like to offend people and so we don't share the gospel what does that mean it means the gospel's offensive the gospel is offensive why because it's foolishness and because it's an indictment of the sin of every single person when you share the gospel with somebody, what you're saying is they need something they don't have. They're incomplete. They're imperfect. There's something wrong with them. And when you begin to share the gospel, it's not just a little thing that's wrong. It's a really big thing that's wrong. The gospel is offensive. Intrinsically, get used to it. Get used to it. You cannot share the gospel without being offensive. The only thing you can do is try not to be offensive in yourself. The gospel's got plenty of offense to go around, so don't add your own if you can help it. But the gospel is offensive. And we need to get used to that, or we're never going to share the gospel as we ought. So number one, sentimentalism keeps us because we don't want to offend. Number two, pragmatism. At the end of the day, we don't think the gospel works. 
That's why we don't share just the gospel. We've got to get the gospel and something else. or something first and then the gospel. And then maybe somebody will get saved. We don't trust the gospel to save people. We don't think it's got the power to save. That's not uh, uh, the word of the cross. The word of the cross, verse 18, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Believe it and then trust it. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to know the answers to all the questions. All you have to know is the message of the cross. Jesus Christ was crucified for the sins of the world and raised from the dead that all who believe in him may have eternal life. That's all you need to share. Often there are questions and you answer those. What you need to recognize, though, is that those questions although they are often about evidences and reasons and good and evil and the problem of suffering, underneath those questions, there's a deeper issue than resolving questions of reason. The deeper issue is resolving the guilt of the conscience. That's what's going on usually behind all of those questions of reason. It's an issue of conscience. It's an issue of guilt. And that's the very point of the gospel in any case. So we talk about those things to the extent that we're able to. But you don't need to be embarrassed to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. You know what? I've got no idea why evil exists and how God can be good and evil can exist. I've got no idea why God chose not to save all people. But this I know. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save sinners of which I am one. And friend, according to scriptures, you are too. There's an answer for your guilt. There's an answer for your meaninglessness. There's an answer for your dislocation and homeliness and alienation. And it is the in receiving Jesus Christ by faith. We fail because of sentimentalism. We fail because of pragmatism. We don't believe the gospel will work. But we also fail because of pride. That's the point I've been trying to get across primarily here. That we don't want to be viewed as fools. We don't want to be thought ill of. We want people to love us, respect us, and accept us. How was, how was Paul received? Everywhere he went, they held a parade, right? Everywhere he went, he won awards. He got the Nobel Peace Prize. He got the Pulitzer Prize. He got none of these. What was his reward? Stoning, beating, arrest, imprisonment, ridicule, mockery. That was his reward for preaching. Why do we think we're going to get something better than that? Why? You see, it's because we're fools, but we're not the kind of fools we ought to be. We're fools because we value the wrong things. We value the respect of the world, the love of the world, the acceptance of the world. All the time, we've got this message of the cross. We've got this opportunity to do the work of our Savior who came to seek and to save the lost and who has commissioned us to join in that work. We have this great and valuable thing, and yet we neglect it. 
because we much more value the love and acceptance of the world. Can I just challenge us to stop being the kind of fools we have been and start being the kind of fools that Paul would have us be, the kind of fools that Christ would have us be? This week, let's watch our hearts. When we get around unbelievers, if you're not around any unbelievers this week, figure out a way to get around some unbelievers. And start watching your heart. Start watching how your mind works. And when you catch yourself being the wrong kind of fool, seeking the respect of the world, remember this verse, that it is that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Remember, verse 21, that in the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And become the kind of fool that you ought to be. John Broadus. John Broadus was one of the four founding professors of Southern Seminary. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary founded in 1859, a long, long time ago, in Greenville, South Carolina, moved to, moved to Louisville, where it now is, in the 1870s. But John Broadus was one of the founding professors. He was a, a, a great preacher, a great interpreter of the Scriptures, knew Greek backwards and forwards. John Broadus had a saying that he, he, he would share with his classes. He said, there's no fool like a fool who knows Latin. There's no fool like a fool who knows Latin. Why is that? Because a fool who knows Latin thinks that he is wise because he's encouraged by, he knows things that other people don't know. He knows the source of ancient wisdom in, in this language. And so he's incorrigible in his foolishness. Incorrigible. Can't be corrected, right? And you've met those kind of fools before. No matter what you say to them, you can't get through. There's no way. They are completely convinced that they are wise, that they are learned. No way to get through to them. No fool like a fool. Of course, today, actually, there's no fool like a fool with a Ph.D., right? Uh, I've got one. Matt's got one. You've got others here pursuing them. Uh, if you meet someone with a doctorate and they're fools, you, you can't convince them that they're fools. You can't convince them that they're not wise because that Ph.D. is their certification that they really are wise. That's just just the way it is. But we're kind of like that. We're kind of like that. We're fools who know Latin. Let's stop being. Let's stop being fools who know Latin. Let's start being fools who know that the message of the cross is folly. Let us be fools who preach and testify to the folly of the cross, knowing that the message of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask your forgiveness that so often we have been fools, that we have received and honored the wisdom of this world, and so despised the wisdom of God. O Lord Jesus, forgive us that we have kept our mouths shut because we have feared men, that we have loved the respect 
and praise of men more than we have loved the salvation of their souls and your glory through the salvation of sinners through faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, we pray that you would make us into the kind of fools that we ought to be those who are willing to be despised and scorned by this world in order that we may testify to the truth of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead. Father, grant that we may be faithful as fools of the cross this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.